Sit back. What NFC East quarterback? Relax. In the movie Ocean's Eleven. Put on your think cap. What prized possession did Danny Ocean get ready for the show? In chemistry, what is the name of the principal? And here's your host. During what year was the Marvel Cinematic Universe? Kevin. How's it going, everybody? Welcome to Think Cap. My name is Kevin, and it's my pleasure to be your host. I want to thank you for joining me after my little hiatus there. Um, Just like my guys over at Free Parking Podcast, uh, real life kind of got in the way of the regular recording schedule for a little bit there, but uh, took a couple weeks off, recharged, and ready to get this thing going again. Um, If you're listening for the first time, let me go over quickly how this podcast is structured. At the beginning of the show, I will pose 10 trivia questions to you and then give you a few moments to think about your answers. Then I will go through each question one by one and give you the answer and the history or data or fun facts behind that answer. So this isn't your standard trivia outfit that just gives you a question and an answer. I give you a brief breakdown that will hopefully satisfy all your curious minds out there while also entertaining you with my banter. Uh, Please don't be frustrated if you don't get many correct. I do tend to choose questions that hedge towards being more difficult because generally they're just much more fun to uh, research and break down for you guys. Um, My goal is that even if you're not the biggest trivia buff in the world, though, that ThinkCap will become your go-to podcast to supplement your knowledge or to help you learn a little bit whenever you choose to consume your favorite podcasts. The show is all general trivia topics, so you never know what you're going to get each week. If you're a fan of the show or you enjoy what you're going to hear next, uh, I would ask that you please recommend the podcast to a friend or to a fellow trivia lover. Getting the word out there about ThinkCap really helps my ability to grow and produce more content for you guys. To keep up with everything that I do post, you can follow ThinkCap at T-H-I-N-K-K-A-P on Instagram or follow on Facebook with the same name. I will post fun facts and historical events and things like that on those accounts, so be following there to uh, keep up with everything ThinkCap. And with that being said, let me once again welcome you to the show, and let's get this thing started. All right, once again, I've got a couple different questions for you today. What I'm going to do is read each question for you, give you a couple moments to think about each one, and then go through and break down each question one by one. So sit back and relax. And let me read these questions for you. Question number one. What is the medical term for an eyeball that has trouble focusing because of an irregular shape or curvature? Once again, what is the medical term for an eyeball that has trouble focusing because of an irregular shape or curvature? Question number two. What is the unit of measure for energy? Once again, what is the unit of measure for energy? Question number three. What was the nickname for the record-breaking offense of the St. Louis Rams during the 1999, 2000, and 2001 NFL seasons? Once again, what was the nickname for the record-breaking offense of the St. Louis Rams during the 1999, 2000, and 2001 seasons. Question number four. 
In what month is the Earth nearest to the Sun? Once again, in what month is the Earth nearest to the Sun? Question number five. In what book of the Bible are the Ten Commandments first listed? Once again, in what book of the Bible are the Ten Commandments first listed? Question number six. What team was 11-time NBA champion Bill Russell drafted by in 1956? Once again, what team was 11-time NBA champion Bill Russell drafted by in 1956? Question number seven. What land animal holds the record for the longest recorded lifespan? Once again, what land animal holds the record for the longest recorded lifespan? Question number eight. What was the name of Walt Disney's family dog? Once again, what was the name of Walt Disney's family dog? As a hint, she was a poodle. Question number nine, nitrous oxide is more commonly known as what? Once again, nitrous oxide is more commonly known as what? And question number 10, this is our last question this week. David Jung invented what staple in American Chinese cuisine? Once again, David Jung invented what staple in American Chinese cuisine? All right, so now that I have read all 10 questions for you, I'm going to go through, break down each one, give you the question, the answer, and some fun facts behind the answer. So let's wrap back around to question number one and get started with that one. Question number one was, what is the medical term for an eyeball that has trouble focusing because of an irregular shape or curvature? And your correct answer is astigmatism. Astigmatism is the right answer. And astigmatism is a common vision problem that is caused by an error in the shape of the cornea. With astigmatism, the lens of the eye, the, the cornea, which is the front surface of the eye, has an irregular curvature. And this can change the way that light passes or refracts through to your retina. This causes blurry, fuzzy, or distorted vision. And the two main types of astigmatism are corneal and lenticular astigmatism. Uh, corneal astigmatism is what happens when your cornea is misshapen. A lenticular astigmatism is what happens when your lens is misshapen. So two slightly different versions that both end up with the patient, with the person with astigmatism needing some glasses to help them see. All right, question number two was, what is the unit of measure for energy? And your correct answer is a joule. Joule, J-O-U-L-E, no, not that other thing. The answer is joule. Um, a joule is equal to the energy transferred to or mechanical work done to an object when a force of one Newton acts on that object 
in the direction of the force's motion for a distance of one meter. So the amount of energy put into an object when a single one Newton force is applied to an object for a distance of one meter is a joule. And it's named after the English physicist James Prescott Joule, who studied the nature of heat, which is the transfer of thermal energy between two um, objects or bodies or places. And he is the one who discovered its relationship with mechanical work. Now, I should define mechanical work. In physics, work is the energy transferred to or from an object via an application of the force along a certain displacement. In its simplest form, it is often represented as the product of a force and displacement. A force is said to do positive work if it has a component in the direction of the displacement to the point of application, and a force does negative work if it has a component opposite to the direction of the displacement at a point of application of the force. Now, I could keep boring you with all of this physics mumbo jumbo, but I think you've gotten the gist of the question, which was uh, the unit of measure for energy was a joule. All right, let's go to question number three. Question three was, what was the nickname for the record-breaking offense of the St. Louis Rams during the 1999, 2000, and 2001 NFL seasons? And your correct answer is the greatest show on turf. The greatest show on turf was the name of that offense. The, the Rams offense during those three seasons averaged 32.7 points per game had three NFL MVP honors, Kurt Warner in 1999, Marshall Falk in 2000, and Warner once again in 2001, and would reach the Super Bowl twice in 1999 and 2001, but winning it only in 1999. The Rams set an NFL record for total offensive yards in 2000, with an astonishing 7,335 total yards of offense, of which 5,492 were passing yards, which was also, not surprisingly, a new NFL record. Those numbers were unseen at that time. I mean, modern times in the NFL, you see kind of these inflated passing stats. You have quarterbacks throw for 300 yards all the time. Um, it, it's pretty regular to have 1,000-yard receivers in the league, but at this time, this was almost unheard of and obviously like I said record setting and during those three seasons the Rams would put up 1,569 points which still stands as the most points scored by any team over any three-year stretch ever. Um, those like I said uh, in modern offensive times that much offense is a little bit more common and their total yardage record has since been broken by the 2011 New Orleans Saints, but they still have that three-year point stretch record standing very strong. The team's most prominent offensive skill players were quarterback Kurt Warner, running back Marshall Falk, and wide receivers Torrey Holt and Isaac Bruce. Of those four, Torrey Holt is the only that has yet to be named to the Hall of Fame, but he has been a candidate for the Hall of Fame, so in my opinion, I think he'll be in there one day, and, and there are still plenty of 
um, personalities on television who will refer to this as one of the greatest offenses of, of all time. Now we have Andy Reid's Chiefs with Mahomes and Kelsey and Tyreek Hill that seem to be lighting up uh, NFL defenses every single week. But again, at the time, this was kind of one of the first all-time great offenses between 99 and 2001, the Rams' greatest show on turf. And question number four was, in what month is the Earth nearest to the sun? When's it closest? And your correct answer, it is closest in the month of January. January is the right answer, and conversely, the Earth is furthest from the sun in July. So I know what you're thinking. Wait, if Earth is closest to the sun in January, why is January always so cold? How can we have winter when the Earth is so close to the sun? And your answer, it's a, a very common question, your answer, it, it has to do with the tilt of the Earth's axis. During the winter, because Earth is closer but tilted away from the sun, the sun's rays hit the Earth at a very shallow angle. At this angle, the rays are more spread out, which minimizes the amount of energy that hits any one given spot. Also, the long nights and short days really prevent the Earth from warming up on us, and thus we have winter. And again, during the summer, we experience the same effect just in inverse. The sun's rays hit the Earth at a very steep angle because we are tilted towards the sun. And the light doesn't spread out as much, which increases the amount of energy that hits any one given spot. And we have longer daylight hours, so the Earth has plenty of time to reach warm temperatures and all those light rays are coming in focused on the same spots and boom, it gives us summer. So it really all has to do with the tilt of the Earth's axis. It's a little bit counterintuitive to think of, but when you remember that Earth does not rotate flat relative to the sun, I don't know if flat is the right word, on a singular straight axis, there you go. Um, that kind of gives you the answer to this one. And of course, these effects are flipped again in the Southern Hemisphere. I'm talking from the Northern Hemisphere's perspective. Um, in the Southern Hemisphere, they experience summer during the Northern Hemisphere's winter months and winter during our summer months. All right, question number five was, in which book of the Bible are the Ten Commandments first listed? And your correct answer is the book of Exodus. Exodus is the right answer. And basically the summary of the story of the Ten Commandments is this. In the Bible's Old Testament, or before Jesus was born, the Israelites were traveling through the desert for nearly three months after being released from their imprisonment and enslavement in Egypt. They set up camp before Mount Sinai, and it was there that God appeared to Moses and made an agreement or a covenant with him. God declared that the Israelites were his own people and that they must listen to him and obey his laws. These laws that he gave Moses were the Ten Commandments, and he gave them to him on two stone tablets, and they basically set out the, the basic principles that would govern the Israelites' lives. The Ten Commandments were as follows, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself any idol, nor bow down or worship it. You shall not have false idols. You shall not take the name of the Lord in vain. 
You should keep holy the Sabbath day. You should honor your father and mother. You shall not kill. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor or lie. And you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or anything that is your neighbor's. Basically, live without jealousy. And the Ten Commandments, they're renowned even outside of Christianity because of their good general moral guidance. They're not really groundbreaking in any way, but it's a good guide to, to live a pretty good life, respecting one's parents, rejecting jealousy, not focusing on a life, uh, chasing false idols, all good things, uh, regardless of your beliefs that started from the book of Exodus. Question number six was, what team was 11-time NBA champion Bill Russell drafted by in 1956? And your correct answer is the St. Louis Hawks. The St. Louis Hawks is the correct answer. After a legendary college career at the University of San Francisco, Bill Russell declared for the 1956 NBA draft as an elite prospect. He was a real good defender, a tough rebounder, and was overall just a can't-miss type of guy. He averaged 20.7 points and 20.3 rebounds per game in college, a double-double with 20 points in each the points and rebound column. That year, the Rochester Royals held the first overall draft pick, but they already had a strong rebounder in Maurice Stokes and were primarily looking for a shooting guard. There are also very strong rumors that the Celtics who did not have a high enough pick in the draft to have a chance at Russell, were infatuated with the way he played. And there's an absolutely wild story about how the Celtics bribed the Royals with a, get this, ice skating show so that they would not pick Bill Russell. They bribed the Royals with an ice skating show. The Ice Capades was a traveling entertainment show that featured a group of figure staters and the show was so popular that crowds would surpass the sides of like Major League Baseball games. These were huge, huge shows. And the Celtics owner at the time, Walter Brown, owned the Ice Capades. And for decades, there have been claims that Brown called the Royals and told them that if they passed on Russell, Rochester could get, a ch could get the Ice Capades to come to town for an entire week and of course the royals officials would decline that this would ever happen or that this was their reasoning but the rumor continues to loom over the draft and as they say sometimes when there's smoke there's a fire um so then the the hawks of course that's where the st louis hawks come into play they had the second pick and they would select bill russell with the second pick and they would flip him right away to boston for ed mccauley and cliff hagan now at the time Celtics player Ed McCauley, who was a St. Louis native, had a son back home who had gotten sick and he kind of just wished to live and play closer to St. Louis to be more near his son and you, you really can't blame him for that. So the Hawks were aware of this and as well as the Celtics interest in Bill Russell and they were able to make the trade happen. They thought he was a good enough player and it was a good enough cause that that is something they would like to do. And it's also worth noting that McCauley wasn't just any scrub. He wasn't just some guy that they decided, you know what, we're really going to help him out by passing up on this generational player. He was a six-time All-Star and is a NBA Hall of Famer. So 
This trade was a pretty monumental swap of talent, but Bill Russell, as I said, uh, would go on to become an 11-time champion, 12-time All-Star, and 5-time MVP, amongst many other accolades. And I'm sure the Hawks have regrets about sending away Bill Russell, as he is an absolute legend, and he's really one of those players that helped entrench the Boston Celtics as one of the NBA's premier franchises. Question number seven was, what land animal holds the record for the longest recorded lifespan? And your correct answer is the Galapagos giant tortoise. Giant tortoise is the right answer. These tortoises are the largest tortoises on earth and are known especially for their longevity. The current oldest living animal on earth is a tortoise named Jonathan who was born in 1832. The giant tortoise was born in the Seychelles Islands and has spent the last 138 years living on St. Helena, which is an island in the South Atlantic Ocean. Jonathan is just about to eclipse Tui Malila, a Madagascar-radiated tortoise gifted to the royal family of Tonga by Captain Cook as the oldest tortoise ever recorded. She, Miss Malila, died in 1965 at the age of 188. And if you do a little bit of backwards math, um, Jonathan in the year 2020 will turn 188. Now, it's not exactly sure when his birthday was, so he may have eclipsed her at this point, or he may still need a couple of months. But regardless, he's well on his way to becoming the oldest ever recorded tortoise. As of December 2015, he's been reported to be blind with cataracts and has lost his sense of smell. So he's not really good at detecting food himself without the help of his keepers. But despite this, his sense of hearing is still good and intact, and his diet is catered to him in hopes of keeping the elderly animal alive and healthy for as long as possible. It's really a a marvel that this creature has been walking around since 1832. I mean, he when he was born on this earth, there were no skyscrapers. The first skyscraper hadn't been built. There hadn't been any world wars. It's it's pretty, pretty wild to think that he's been around on this same earth as we have all this time. And question number eight was, what was the name of Walt Disney's family dog? And I did give you a little bit of hint saying that she was a poodle, if that helps you out. Her name was Lady. Lady was her name. Obviously, if you understand the reference, it's to Lady and the Tramp, um, which is a story based on the 1945 Cosmopolitan magazine story of Happy Dan the Cynical Dog by Ward Green. Um, Lady and the Tramp tells the story of a female American Cocker Spaniel named Lady who lives with a refined upper-middle-class family and a male stray mutt called the Tramp. When the two dogs meet, they embark on romantic adventures and will fall in love. So Walt Disney read this short story and that thought that it would be improved if his lady fell in love with the cynical dog character and so he bought the rights to the story. Now the dog had various names during development including Homer, Rags, and Bozo, but eventually Tramp was chosen. And one other funny anecdote was that uh, lady really, really enjoyed hot dogs, so Walt Disney was known to keep his fridge stocked with hot dogs for Lady. He would always come home from work, and he would grab two or three hot dogs to share 
with his little girl named Lady. And obviously she was the inspiration for Lady and the Tramp. And I think we've all seen it. It's a, it's a true classic, true, true classic Disney film. And I'm sure it's probably on their list of uh, live action remakes. They, they've been kind of going hard with the, the live action remakes. And I would imagine that Lady and the Tramp's probably on there somewhere. All right, that brings us to question number nine, which was nitrous oxide is a more commonly known as what? And your correct answer is laughing gas. Laughing gas is the right answer. Nitrous oxide is a colorless and odorless substance known, like I said, as laughing gas. It gets its name because when it's inhaled, the gas slows down your body's reaction time, which results in a calm, euphoric feeling. Nitrous oxide is a safe and effective sedative agent that is mixed with oxygen and inhaled through a small mask that fits over your nose to help you relax commonly during certain dentist procedures. And it's, it's not one of those gases that's intended to put you to sleep. It's just if you inhale the laughing gas uh, as, as prescribed, you should be able to hear and respond to any questions that the dentist has for you. Like I said, you shouldn't be unconscious. You shouldn't fall asleep. It's, it's just to relax you. And your dentist normally will ask you to breathe through your nose. And within a few short minutes, you should start to feel the effects of the nitrous oxide. And the effects will wear off pretty much as soon as the mask is removed. You may feel lightheaded and tingling in your arms or legs, or they might feel heavy, but ultimately you should feel calm and comfortable and ready for whatever scary tools that the dentist is prepared to use on you. All right, question number 10. Question number 10 was, David Jung invented what food, which is a staple in American Chinese cuisine? And your correct answer, he invented fortune cookies. Fortune cookies is the right answer. Fortune cookies are actually based on a Japanese fortune tradition known as umikuji. Appearing in about the 19th century in Kyoto, Japan, a cookie which was a little bit larger, made of darker dough, and that had batter with sesame and miso rather than vanilla and butter, was used to convey an omikuji. The fortune, however, was wedged into the bend of the cookie rather than placed inside of the hollow portion as our modern American cookies are. David Jung, the founder of the Hong Kong Noodle Company in Los Angeles, has made the claim that he invented the cookie in 1918. But upon doing some research for this question, I actually found that Mr. Jung's claim is disputed as Makato Hagawara of Golden Gate Park's Japanese Tea Garden in San Francisco is also reported as being the first person in the U.S. to sell a modern version of the traditional cookie when he did so at the Tea Garden in the 1890s or early 1900s. Seichi Kito, who is the founder of Fugetsu Do of Little Tokyo in Los Angeles, also claims to have invented the cookie. Kito claims to have gotten the idea of putting a message in a cookie from Omikuji, which is the fortune slip, and those are sold at temples and shrines in Japan. So he actually got the idea in Japan for a modernized American version. According to his story, he sold his cookies to Chinese restaurants where they were greeted with much enthusiasm in both the Los Angeles and San Francisco areas. Thus, Keto's main claim is that he is responsible for the cookie being so strongly associated with Chinese specifically restaurants. 
So basically we've got at least three men claiming to have invented the cookie and David Jung's claim actually had San Francisco's Court of Historical Review attempt to settle the dispute in 1983. During the proceedings, a fortune cookie was introduced as a key piece of evidence with a message reading, SF judge who rules for LA, not a very smart cookie. Uh, a federal judge of the Court of Historical Review determined that the cookie originated with Hagawara and the court ruled in favor of San Francisco. But subsequently, the city of Los Angeles condemned the decision. So it's still kind of up in the air. I guess there's not really any definitive claim to who exactly was first. But to my understanding, Mr. Jung is the most well-known fortune cookie inventor. So that's why I picked him as the, uh, the, the spokesperson for the answer to this trivia question. But if you would have said Hagawara or Kito, um, props to you. That's impressive that you would know that to begin with. So funny enough, when, uh, when American fortune cookies were exported to Hong Kong in hopes of selling the cookies into the Chinese market, the sales flopped as consumers claimed they were too American. So next time you get some takeout Chinese food, you can kind of think of this trivia question and think about how over in China, these things don't exist. They think they are way too American for their, for their taste. All right. Now that brings us to the end of our show. If you've made it this far, I want to thank you for hanging out with me and I hope that you learned a little bit. If you enjoyed the show, I would ask that you would please review, like, or subscribe, follow if you can, do whatever you can on whatever streaming platform you listen on. Any involvement from you guys really helps us out. All those reviews, all those likes really, really, really help us. Um, I also have a pseudo announcement. We're going to try and get a ThinkCap Challenger series going. So my idea is to have a podcast that brings on two guests and I can present questions to each of them in kind of a back and forth head-to-head competitive manner so you guys don't just keep hearing me drone on and on about all these different things we can get some other voices in here get a little competition going and have a little fun with that so i'll be releasing more information on that in the coming days but be on the lookout for the think cap challenger series Um, like i said i'll be talking about that you can follow Think Cap on Instagram or Facebook at uh, T H I N K K A P, as I said in the intro. And um, yeah, that's it for this week's episode. So, once again, I want to thank you for listening. I will catch you next week and take care. <laughs>